1: Coming up on today's show, Alberta leads the country when it comes to food insecurity levels. Natural gas, why isn't it a bigger part of the conversation as Germany's leader is here to sign energy deals with our country? And we'll also find out more about the first Indigenous Supreme Court of Canada justice. The nomination has been made. We'll find out about Michelle Obonsoe. Uh, right now, though, we're going to have a conversation about a new report that's just come out um, from University of Toronto. We've talked a lot about the rising cost of food in our country. This report talks about what happened in 2021 and how many Canadians face what's called food insecurity. And the number is shocking. Just shy of six million Canadians had trouble putting food on the table in 2021. Worse uh, for us in this part of the world, Albertans far more likely to fall into that category, Um, some troubling numbers to be sure, so let's find out what's going on. We're going to chat with Valerie Teresuk, Professor of Nutritional Sciences at the U of T's Temerity Faculty of Medicine. Uh, Valerie, thanks so much for joining us, I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. So just to define the terms here, we're talking about a survey on food insecurity, so uh, when we say food insecurity, what does that mean for the purposes of this survey?
2: It means inadequate or insecure access to food because of financial constraints. So the experiences that are measured on this uh, survey range from people worrying about running out of food and not having money to buy more, through people compromising the quality of what they're eating because they can't afford better food. But the lion's share of the questions relate to quantitative deprivation. So people cutting the size of their meals, skipping meals, or going hungry without eating, all because of a lack of money for food.
1: Nationally, more than 15% of Canadians reporting some kind of food insecurity?
2: Almost sixteen percent. Yeah, it's, it's, I know it's shocking, isn't it? Yeah. It
1: is. It's absolutely. It really is. And then you know when you when you sort of break it down to what's going on in Canada, in Alberta, it, it jumps up yet again to to basically one in five Albertans saying that they're they're facing food insecurity in twenty twenty one.
2: That's surprising. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Was it surprising and, and to you? Yes, but this is what we're reporting in this uh, study is three years of data. So 2019, 2020, and 2021. And what's also interesting, I mean, these numbers are high, but they're obviously not a flash in the pan right. because the rate across the country overall has remained fairly steady across those years at roughly six million Canadians living in households that report some level of, of concern about food. Um, the numbers in Alberta are concerning, but also, I mean, those numbers are fairly steady, right? Mm-hmm. The, they've They haven't, um, they've been kind of, they're a little bit higher in 2021 than they were in 2020 and 2019. But, you know, we're talking about not uh, not a dramatically new story so much as something that we're reporting on now that has been obviously lurking in the background for some time.
1: And you know what, we've, like, you know what's going on with the the price of food and the cost of food in Canada right now in 2022 building off of 2021 there's got to be a
2: lot of fear about where we are right now absolutely absolutely i mean we know that the single biggest driver of food insecurity in canada isn't the price of food it's income right i mean at the end of the day all of the questions that are used to assess this problem in statistics canada surveys um are asking about problems affording food because of a lack of um, money for food yeah and so the, the single biggest determinant is, is income, but with the absolutely unprecedented inflation on in food and rent and fuel costs over the last what, few months even, um, it, the costs of living are getting further away from the incomes of the lowest income people in our population. And so, yeah, it's, it's very worrisome to think what will happen in, through 2022, unless we see some very concerted action on the part of our federal and provincial governments.
1: Yeah, absolutely, it cannot have gotten any better by any stretch of the imagination.
2: No, No, this is not a problem that's going to fix itself. Right, exactly, yeah. Yeah.
1: Do we know why the changes happened specifically when we're talking about Alberta now being at the top of this list? Is there any information as to why that change may have happened over the past few years?
2: Well, I I guess the short answer is no. Um, What's interesting in seeing Alberta at the top, it's also important to think about who's at the bottom because Alberta in 2021 is sitting at 20.3% the low uh, lowest rate of food insecurity that we've observed is in quebec and it's at 13.1 and for several years now we've noticed quebec pulling away from the other provinces and it's constantly seeing, you know, lower rates in Quebec and Quebec turning, a, residents in Quebec being a protectant protection against food insecurity when we do more complicated analyses. So I think perhaps one interpretation of what's happened in Alberta is the province hasn't done a particularly good job of looking after its lowest income citizens, and that's showing. And, you know, as the economic circumstances get more challenging, I think without provincial action that really reaches out to the people at the bottom end, Mm -hmm. this is what it looks like.
1: And and as you say, I mean, this can actually, it's a very, very late warning and one they should have picked up on years ago. But when we're getting into these kind of levels, it can be a warning to all levels of government that, that we're dropping the ball here. Well,
2: absolutely, and and to go back to Quebec for a minute, the the discrepancy between Quebec and Alberta says you can do better, right? Provincial policies matter. That's mm-hmm. what, that's what we're seeing. When we see drastic differences between the provinces, you know, some might say, well, that's about the economy, but you wouldn't say that as an explanation for Alberta, really, right? <laughs> At least those of us in the rest of Canada wouldn't say, oh, Alberta's, you know, Alberta's struggling because of, uh, you know, because it's not a rich enough province. So the distinction between these provinces really boils down to provincial policy. But you're right. It's provincial plus, um, federal because it's even, even with Quebec where all all of, you know, they have very generous child benefits. They have all of their um, income transfers that are administered provincially are indexed to inflation. Right, right. So their population is being protected now to some extent. I'm sure people in Quebec would say it's nowhere, nowhere near enough. But still, their population is being protected from these rising costs in a way that Albertans aren't.
1: Eye opening numbers, Valerie. Thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Well, thanks very much for your interest in
1: this topic. That's Valerie Teresuk, who is a professor of nutritional sciences at the U of T's Temerity Faculty of Medicine. Now, Global News did reach out to uh, the provincial government to get their take on these numbers, and Community and Social Services Minister Jason Luan sent a statement back saying the government continues to support the province's most vulnerable. He said uh, the government has provided $6 million in funding to support food banks and community organizations. He said Alberta's assured income for the severely handicapped rates are the highest among the provinces. However, it was de-indexed back in 2020, if you remember. So the benefits do not reflect um, what we're seeing in terms of inflation of 10% or 8% uh, so far this year. Uh, He goes on to say we're doing everything we can in order to help families get the support that they need to pay rent, to buy food, to find and keep appropriate housing and care for their loved ones. Overall, Alberta's government has committed more than any other province for affordability, with more than $2 billion in relief that includes fuel tax relief, electricity rebates, affordable childcare, and a natural gas rebate that will begin this fall. And all of those things certainly will help in some instances and not in others. I mean, that's the thing, right? Uh, if you're talking about uh, a fuel tax relief for somebody who doesn't drive, doesn't make any difference, but it does for some families who, you know, maybe that does make a difference for them. But the numbers are not good. One in five Albertans reporting food insecurity, 6% of Albertans reporting severe food insecurity. When it gets to that level, that means they're skipping meals, sometimes going days without food. And 6% uh, of Albertans reportedly in that position. So obviously, this should be an eye-opening report. We're, we're we're not doing the job that we need to do. When you're talking about one in five people in the province uh, having a hard time putting food on the table, that's that's a number that demands some attention. So yesterday, um, our prime minister and German Chancellor Olaf Scholz were in, uh, Stephenville, Newfoundland, uh, set to sign a green energy deal. There's a, a company out in Newfoundland that is building a zero emissions plant that will use wind energy to produce hydrogen. Uh, and that's the deal we're going to be shipping this hydrogen to Germany. Wait to hear what that costs. But okay. Uh, hydrogen is seen to be Perhaps the future when it comes to a lot of the things that we're talking about, energy and transition economy and, and all the rest of this stuff. But, um, that's down the road and how immediate can it be? And I mean, there's so many questions about this. And what people keep talking about and asking these two leaders about is, is natural gas. I mean, th- where does that fit in? We're going to chat now with Adam Pankratz, who is a lecturer at the University of British Columbia's Sauter School of Business. He's on the board of directors at Rockmaster Resources. Adam, thank you for joining us. I appreciate your time. Uh, nice to be with you, Shane. So we've got hydrogen grabbing a lot of headlights. But but I mean, at the heart of this whole situation is natural gas, really, right? I mean, when you talk about the heart of the matter with Germany and, and their dependence on um, uh, natural gas coming out of Russia, they're talking about renewables and hydrogen, but right now and this coming winter, it still all comes down to natural gas, doesn't it?
3: For this winter and for likely for foreseeable winters, um, it does. Germany was depending on Russia for 55% of their gas um, pre-war in Ukraine. That's still where the bulk of it is coming from, even at uh, much reduced flows. And um, realistically, uh, that is going to be what the solution is probably going to be for Germany for the next, Five, even ten years.
1: Exactly right. So, why are we? When you know the question is raised to uh, Schultz or to Trudeau, you know, over the past few days, their answer is sort of like, "Yeah, it doesn't really fit into the equation. This isn't about natural gas. How does that make sense?"
3: It doesn't is the short answer. Um, that gas, natural gas, is a cleaner burning alternative that we have access to, that we can produce, um, and, and not, not just Canada, but that the world has access to and can produce, um, is 40% uh, more efficient than, or burns cleaner, 40% cleaner than, than burning coal, and is something that can solve the problem right now. And when you look at what uh, was announced yesterday with the hydrogen plant, I mean, <laughs> there's, you know, you would try to find nice ways to put it, but really that's selling a fantasy. Um, There isn't that technology yet. Uh, That project is a long way off. And if you're looking to solve the solution or find the solution even in the next decade, you need something like natural gas to do this and hydrogen is just not there yet. Is natural gas there, though, Adam? That's also what we're hearing.
1: We don't, you know, even if we wanted to ship the liquefied natural gas over to Europe, we can't. We don't have a liquefaction facility on the East Coast. Uh, we don't have the pipelines that would be needed to get the gas from Alberta to the East Coast. That's the case the Prime Minister is saying is we don't have the infrastructure to even do what you're talking about anyway.
3: Well... We will have it shortly with LNG Canada. And what I would say to to anyone who's saying that we don't have it yet, I mean, it can be built. You can build these pipelines if you have a desire to do so. Um, And there would be a business case case for it. But that's been, you know, in my view, a big policy, energy policy failure by the Canadian government um, for the last, five or ten years that we have not found a way to get our resources to market and so the lng or the gas that we have is essentially trapped within our borders yeah. because yeah. of our limited pipeline capacity and that's been that's been a big problem uh, not just with with gas but also with oil and you know we're seeing the effects it's you know the the alberta eco cost of gas um you know it bob's around four to five dollars has recently dropped um, even below $1, while the Henry Hub in the United States is selling for $12 Canadian equivalent. And in Europe, you're looking at $90 uh, uh, per million British thermal units. So you've got a 45 uh, times, uh, you know, for, for 45,000% difference in, uh, in the price from Canada to, to uh, Europe. And, and we're not able to take advantage of it. And that's a real shame for the Canadian economy and all Canadians.
1: Yeah, and, and just uh, while we're talking about cost of energy, uh, this green hydrogen, uh, the cost of producing uh, that kind of energy versus natural gas, it, it, again, it's orders of magnitude more at this point in time, right? I mean, it's absolutely astronomical.
3: It, it's very expensive the cost of the project that is being proposed is in the neighborhood of 10 to 12 billion US dollars um and then you know after that um you know making hydrogen is 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 a, is, a, is a good can could be a good fuel but sure. as it stands right now um you know 40% of the energy that you're generating uh, you only get 40 percent equivalent energy in hydrogen out of the energy you generate right because you have to you lose so much in the process of, of producing that hydrogen so it's it's nowhere near as efficient an energy as the LNG that's here that's here right, right. and that yeah. that we have huge resources 83 trillion cubic feet of of, of uh, natural gas identified and, and available Um this is this is enormous resource that we're just not taking advantage of as a stance. So, I
1: mean, how did we get into this position? Is it is it provincial governments? Is it federal governments? Is it Europe not saying, you know what? Yeah, it's going to be a little more costly and it's going to be it's going to be harder to do. But it's a better choice than becoming completely and utterly dependent on Vladimir Putin's gas fields. I mean, how did we get to this situation where now we're left scrambling?
3: Yeah, I I mean there's a lot of blame to to spread around and, and certainly Europe um can share in part of that uh blame and if I if I were a German I'd be asking why we're not they weren't they aren't fracking their own gas resources, which they could access but are blocked by the Green Party in the Bundestag. But that's Germany's business, right? I'm more interested in what we in Canada have been doing. Um and it's just been a desire to um try to sell a transition of green energy that simply isn't here yet right the green energy transition is coming and mm-hmm. it will come but we need to be realistic about the timelines and those timelines are going to be measured in decades they're not going to be measured in years so we've got decades long transition we it t- we've we've been addicted to fossil fuels and oil for over a century well, you're not just going to cut that off, right? And I would say, you know, we kind of know, in a sense, what does the world look like if you really just cut fossil fuels? Well, where, when did that last happen? Well, that was the first couple weeks of COVID in 2020, right? The world totally shut down. The p- prices of every fossil fuel plunged. Well, that is what the world looks like when you turn off fossil fuels. So we don't want that, right? That That much is clear. So what does the transition look like over these decades as we get to fully renewable and this is where LNG has a massive role to play and and we're sitting on this huge resource that we you know we, we can we need to export it even if it takes another 5 or 10 years to get the infrastructure in there that it's still going to be needed and we're going to look back to 2022 and say gee I wish we'd you know we're looking back to 2015 and say right. gee I wish it had, we did it in 2015 we're going to be saying the same thing in 5 or 10 years if we don't get moving now
1: You know, Adam, I always say it's kind of like reality just sits there being reality while leaders go off and make these grand proclamations and set these aspirational goals uh, that sometimes don't always line up with the reality. And in the end, reality is the one calling the shots. And that appears to be, in a lot of ways, where we are right now. Like, there's all these plans. And like you say, there's all the, you know, the restrictions against Germany accessing their own gas. And we've sort of turned a blind eye to it. And now all of a sudden we're in a position where we've made mistakes over the course of time. And it's kind of hard to fix them. Do you think this changes the thinking like you say? This, you know, it might take 5, might take 10 years. Do you think this would in any way increase the appetite of the global community and our federal leaders to actually say okay, we need to soften our stance a bit? Do you think that's even possible?
3: You know, I hope so. Um, You know what Mr. Trudeau said yesterday doesn't necessarily give a lot of hope for the immediate turn. Um, I think, though, the international community uh, is is taking is sitting up and paying attention, right? And and as the world, you know, it's it's a bigger conversation to how the world is sort of splitting um, between democracies and non-democracies but as we as we look towards energy security among our allies and friends um certainly the united states is is perking up and is starting to export their lng and figuring out that energy security matters um europe is getting a blatant uh smack in the face with their energy prices right now i mean uh like energy gas costs in london which for a normal home a year ago would have been maybe 50 or 100 pounds are now 500 pounds a month, right? So for regular families, this is just a, a, an absolute slap in the face as to, hey, this this stuff matters. Um, will we belatedly be dragged around to doing something about it? You know, I, I certainly hope so, and I remain hopeful that, that there is some uh, common sense and pragmatic-based policy that will come out and recognize that, yes, sure, let's make that transition to renewable fuels. But in the meantime, and the meantime is decades, uh, we need to take advantage of the incredible resources we have.
1: Yeah, Adam, uh, I agree with you completely. Thanks so much for joining us today. I appreciate your time, sir. We're talking about the situation um, with Germany trying to find ways to replace uh, the energy they typically get from Russia for obvious reasons, right? Um, not only is it unreliable at this point in time, but any money they do spend on it directly funds the Russian war effort. This has been a situation for a few months now. Um, the German leader is in our country meeting with our prime minister. They were signing deals on green hydrogen uh, in the Maritimes yesterday. Uh, in the meantime... Olaf Scholz, who is the leader of Germany, appeared on um CBC yesterday with my old colleague, Vashi Kapelos, and in an interview, he said, we would really like Canada to export more liquefied natural gas to Europe, but he said there are no business cases at the moment, and our leader says it would be a costly endeavor, not sure if it would actually pay off in the end, because the timeline is rather long, so... Wait a minute, you just made the business case, didn't you? When you say there's no business case, you just said Germany would really like Canada to export more natural gas to Europe. That's the business case, isn't it? Uh, what am I missing? I'm not sure. We're going to chat now with Dale Nally, who is the Associate Minister of Natural Gas and Electricity for the province of Alberta. Um, Minister Nally, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us.
4: Oh my pleasure, Shay. it's a pleasure to be here.
1: Okay, this situation, uh, just give me your take on this because it's all very I mean it, it seems like there's some common sense at the middle here, but nobody's talking about it. Where does natural gas fit into what's going on right now with the situation in Europe? Well, nat- natural gas
4: is the is the solution. It's, uh, it's the cleanest fossil fuel that we have. And uh, in Alberta, we have some of the cleanest natural gas in the world. And, and my message when I speak to global investors is that our natural gas is so clean because of our methane emission standards and because of the liquefaction will, will happen by hydroelectric facilities. Because of all those reasons, the last drop of LNG that is consumed on this planet should come from right here in Alberta that's how clean our natural gas is unfortunately shay we have a federal government and a uh, that has continued to slow play us on every effort we have had to get our natural gas to global markets
1: the leader of germany and the prime minister saying there there hasn't been a business case i mean with they, they, they the the parameters may be changing. And, you know, some of these big businesses are taking a closer look at it now, given what's going on in Europe. But up until now, and the situation in Europe, it just hasn't made sense for these businesses to bring in the infrastructure, build the liquefaction facilities and the, you know, the ways to transport it. So is that true? Is it just not been economically feasible?
4: Well, first of all, it is absolutely economically feasible, but the challenge with the business case is that we have a federal government that continues to change the goalposts on regulatory approvals, and that has scared away investment. We have had 30 projects, Shay, that have uh, have been proposed somewhere off the coast of Canada, the West Coast, East Coast. 30 projects that have been proposed. And to, to date, only one is under construction, and that's LNG Canada. And that project, by the way, took seven years to be approved because we have a federal government that continues to slow play us and change the goalposts.
1: So where we are now with Germany saying you know, we would like to see Canada export a lot more natural gas, is that even possible? What are the timelines like now if there was suddenly a change of heart internationally and at the federal level to say, yeah, let's do this? What are the timelines like?
4: Well, here's the challenge, is, is because of the failure to get uh, pipelines to the east, it's, uh, it's no longer uh, an opportunity uh, to get uh, Alberta gas to the east coast as easily as it would have been and could have been. But there are other opportunities for us. We can get our gas to Asia which would free up uh, other markets that could get their gas to Europe. We can also get our gas to the Gulf Coast, and there's actually a couple of Alberta companies that are currently shipping their uh, natural gas to the Gulf Coast, and they're getting it to Europe that way. Now, my uh, my, my comment is that this is absolutely the way forward. Uh, in order to, to have that happen, we need a federal government that needs to get out of the way. In fact, I would say to our Prime Minister, if you're willing to streamline approvals for, for projects on the East Coast, then then why don't you help us streamline projects off the West Coast in Alberta that will help us get gas, not just to global markets, but specifically to
1: Europe. So we're talking about this absolute pressure point here today. How did we get here, though? I mean, we've had successive governments of all kinds uh, for a number of years. Did we not see this coming? Have we just, at every level of government, dropped the ball historically on this?
4: Well, uh, it's, for the for the last uh, seven, eight years, it's been, been particularly bad. I'll give you a specific example. We have the, uh, the, the NGTL, is the, the Nova Gas Transmission Line, and that's how we ship gas across the province and how we get it out of the province. And because of increased production, we're always needing to expand it. So we had a 2021 expansion. The Canadian Energy Regulator approved the expansion. And, and this is quite standard because quite frankly, we can't heat our homes in Alberta if we can't get this gas around. So it's uh, uh, consulting with Indigenous communities, regulatory approvals, all of that is something that that we're used to. Uh, In Alberta, we do a good job of it, And, and we were anticipating the CR to recommend approval. They did recommend approval as we expected. Unfortunately, the federal government took seven months to approve it, even though even though the, the CER's recommendation was sitting on their desk. I had a conversation with Minister O'Regan. I pleaded with him that if you continue to slow play the province of Alberta and expanding our uh, our, our uh, natural gas pipelines, uh, it will harm Albertans. It will, uh, it will uh, create a, a problem uh, we're, that we're seeing now, which is we're getting less than $2 a gigajoule for natural gas. We're getting $10 in the States. They're actually getting $50 in Asia and $90 in Europe. Yeah. And this is because we don't have proper egress. And the reason is we lost an entire construction conceit season because the federal government had to see our recommendation to approve, and they sat on it. I pleaded with the minister at the time to move forward with approval. So
1: what do we do? I mean, where we are right now, what's the message from the province? I mean, it sounds like there's been missed opportunity after missed opportunity after missed opportunity. Is that what it is? Like, there's an opportunity here, let's not miss it again?
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the problem, of course, is regulatory hurdles that continue to be put in front of us, regulatory hurdles like C-69, which are a deterrent to investment. Now, we we have a a prime minister, and I'm thrilled that he signed an MOU on hydrogen. We think that hydrogen has an absolute incredible future in in this country, in Alberta. But the fact is, there's an energy crisis today that we've been talking about for years. The prime minister has just woken up to it. And and my message to to the federal liberals is if you're willing to streamline approvals for Germany off the east coast please streamline approvals in Alberta, streamline them on the west coast, help us get our clean natural gas to energy markets uh, to global markets because there is a demand for clean responsible energy from secure democracies like Alberta Uh, and the business case is there quite frankly
1: that's the point uh, Minister When, when we hear these leaders saying there's no business case but at the same time saying yeah we would really like to get a lot more natural gas from Canada that is the business case is it not?
4: It is absolutely the business case, and let me tell you, there, I was in Asia uh, earlier on this summer. There is an insatiable appetite yeah. for Alberta energy, and exists not just in Asia but in Europe as well. The and, business and, case is there. Well, I mean, like you said,
1: the one the one liquefaction facility that we're developing with Alberta Natural Gas will go to Asia, right? That's the West Coast one that ultimately will be sending right. uh, natural gas to Asia. Yes, yeah, so we we are meeting that demand to some capacity. It's Europe that uh, seems to be the pressure point now, uh, Mr. Nally, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us this morning.
4: My my pleasure to to come
1: on here. Thanks, Shay. Thank you very much. That is the Associate Minister for Natural Gas and Electricity for the province of Alberta, Dale Nally. History in the making today in our country it all started last week when Ontario Judge Michelle Obonsawin was nominated for the Supreme Court of Canada. Right now, uh, this afternoon, she is addressing a parliamentary committee in Ottawa, but it's not like uh, in the United States. Um, her appointment doesn't need a vote, okay? It's not like she needs to be um, passed by the House and the Senate like they do in the United States. We don't have that kind of procedure here. She's been nominated. Uh, she will be the first Indigenous person to be ever placed on the Supreme Court of Canada. Clearly, that's an important attribute, but that's not all. That's the one of many sterling attributes that um, she brings, along with tremendous experience and credentials, um, to her appointment on the Supreme Court of Canada. So let's get a bit of background. We're going to chat with uh, Robert Jaynes, who is a partner with JFK Law in Toronto and in Victoria, and he focuses his practice on Aboriginal law. Robert, thank you for joining us. I appreciate your time. No, thanks for having me. So tell us about Michelle Obansowin, Um just what it is that you think she brings to the Supreme Court, aside from the fact that, you know, she's
5: making history and arriving there. Well, obviously, the, the headline uh, item is the fact that she's an Indigenous person and the first Indigenous person uh, to go to the court. She's Abenaki from Northern Ontario. She grew up near Sudbury. Um, and, um, you know, so clearly bring to the table experience as the first Indigenous uh, person to be appointed to the court, and at a time when there's some very important Indigenous issues going to be going to the court over the next uh, couple of years. There's there's going to be a case about uh, the First Nations' ability to take over child and family welfare services. There's going to be an important case about uh, First Nations self-government and the ability to decide You know who is who could be in their government or not, and there's going to be a big case about whether or not there should have been revenue sharing for the last century and a half in Ontario. But but also, you know, she has a doctorate in law. She received a PhD in law. She has experience as a trial judge. Um, She's been a trial judge in Ottawa since 2017, and so she's actually been through the 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 hell essentially that the uh, courts have gone through during COVID and. There's undoubtedly going to be many cases coming up about delay and issues caused in the court by COVID, where she'll be able to bring her direct experience as a criminal law trial judge. And uh, she has some practical experience um, working in the hospital setting. She was a lawyer for the Royal Royal uh, Royal Ottawa Hospital. And, you know, I fully expect that there's going to be a couple of big health care cases coming up before the court in the next couple of years and to have a judge there who actually has some inside knowledge about how the hospital systems work the strain that is under the kind of issues it's dealing with um, will be invaluable and you know robert you make such a good point that
1: that inside knowledge that perspective um, can be so important. And like you said, there's some big cases coming up. There's already been a number of cases. I mean, the Supreme Court has had a, a huge impact on the lives of Canada's Indigenous people for a very, very long time. And never before have we had an Indigenous perspective on the court making those decisions. That's that's a fundamental
5: shift. Oh, it's 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 a huge shift. And, you know, over my career... I've seen it shift from that once upon a time when I was starting out, you rarely ever saw even an Indigenous lawyer at the Supreme Court. It was essentially a large number of non-Indigenous lawyers talking to non-Indigenous judges about the lives of Indigenous people. And I can remember the first case where an Indigenous lawyer led off, um, you, you know, speaking for the Haida, and the impact that had in the courtroom and for the judges where they knew that they weren't just talking about an Indigenous person, but they were actually talking to an Indigenous person. was huge. And now they'll have an Indigenous person, you know, when they walk out the back door of the courtroom and sit around that big round table behind the Supreme Court courtroom, there'll be an Indigenous person sitting there where they talk about the lives of Indigenous people. You
1: know, and that kind of diversity, I mean, as you say, it will inform their decisions. It'll be part of what the Supreme Court does. But, I mean, when you take a look at... um a a system or a service or whatever you want to call the Supreme Court or government or, or media or corporations or whatever it is, um, there's a recognition that they should reflect the customer or the citizens or the people that they're serving. All those perspectives are, are
5: valuable. Yeah. And well, Canada has always recognized on the Supreme Court that it needs um, to have people from from proper different areas. So, for example, there have to be three judges from Quebec. But there's also been, over the years, customs developed where there always have to be two judges from the western part of the country. So there's a presently mm-hmm. two judges from Alberta on the court and a court judge from Atlantic Canada. It would be inconceivable now if the court ever got to a point where there were no women on it. Um, so, you know, we've, we've realized in Canada, and quite different than the U.S. in this regard, that that it doesn't do, for example, to just have a court that, only has lawyers from Ontario and Quebec, for example. Right.
1: Yeah, it needs to and reflect. This is, I
5: think this is another step down this road, right? And particularly given, just like Indigenous people are so affected by the Supreme Court in the way that most people aren't, um, and uh, you know, this this is filling a real gap that's existed for decades
1: now. Robert, what about her experience as a trial lawyer, as a criminal lawyer? I mean, that's not something that we see a whole lot of on the Supreme Court traditionally, is it? I mean, is that something that she brings that's also in some ways kind of unique?
5: Yeah, well, her experience is actually as a trial judge, and that's something that the present court doesn't have a lot of experienced trial yeah. judges on it. Um, you know, and that, that's, it, it, Justice Moldaver, who's retiring... On whose seat she's taking. He was a very famous criminal lawyer in Toronto before uh, he became a judge. And look, there's no doubt there's some judges um, on the court who've written some important criminal law judgments. But to have a judge who's actually for you know five six years sat there in the courtroom and seen criminal cases, seen the delays, seen the problems, seen the challenges. You know, like two important cases of the court in the last eight years have been about delay and about like how it is that the courts run. And to have someone who is on the ground are there is crucial.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely, I mean, it's that lived experience. And last one, and you mentioned it, but I want to expand on a little bit more healthcare experience. You're right. We are going to see a tremendous number of legal battles over COVID-19, over all kinds of public health things that have taken place in this country. Um, And as you say, she's been in the healthcare system, so she has uh, one foot in that world as well as her legal background. It's going to be extremely important. Yes.
5: I mean, there's a case coming up in British Columbia right now which is a direct challenge to um, to the idea of you know the public health care system and restricting the ability of people to be able to just pay for health care and um, and and at the same time doctors also get publicly subsidized effectively and it's very likely that case is going to the Supreme Court of Canada, and depending on what the courts say, it could change all of our lives mm-hmm. and to have someone there who's actually worked in a hospital, <laughs> you, who's actually dealt with some of the realities of, of what does it mean to say, you know, you're going to change the healthcare system. You're going to say some people can pay to get to the head of the line while others can't. You know, what, what will that mean in practice? How that will, will that change things at work? And, and right now, the other eight judges, they're great judges. They have great experiences, but none of them have ever had that kind of direct experience in healthcare.
1: Yeah, great points. Uh, Robert, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you joining us today. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.